Hi, writers. This is Jim Thayer. Let's talk in this episode about dialogue, which is, of course, conversation between characters in a story. Dialogue has a lot of uses, and importantly, it's fun to write and it's fun to read. Snappy, entertaining, revealing dialogue is often more is often the most memorable aspect of a novel. Some novels, such as those of George V. Higgins, contain almost nothing but dialogue. Novelist Robert B. Parker once said of Higgins, quote, His novels were hardly narrated at all. The reader seems instead to overhear them, end quote. Writing dialogue has advantages over authorial narration. By authorial narration, I mean everything in the novel that isn't dialogue between the characters. First, an advantage. Many writers find writing dialogue easier than writing in the narrator's voice. The reason is that dialogue is more informal, requiring less phrase-by-phrase crafting. If the novelist narrator describes a storm at sea, she often needs to be novelistic, offering the reader something interesting and new, offering prose that is crafted, such as foam-tipped waves, the trackless water, the corrugated sea, a smother of spray, ramparts of water. I forget who I borrowed those phrases from, but I like them, describing a a sea. But people, including fictional people in our stories, don't talk like this. Instead, a character would say a storm at sea is, it's rough out there, which is easier to write. There's an old saying, there are two things that cannot be described in prose. One of them is a sunset. If the writer doesn't want to take the time to describe a sunset in the writer's narrative voice, he can have a character say, quote, nice sunset tonight. It saves the writer uh, time and energy. A second advantage of dialogue is that it lets the reader get close to the characters. Conversation is immediate. The reader is at the table with the characters, or on the ship with them, or at the high school dance, or in the spaceship. The reader becomes part of the story overhearing the characters speak. A third advantage of dialogue is that it can be a quick and entertaining way to give information to the reader. Often the interaction between characters is hugely entertaining, and it leavens the information the writer is dispensing. One of the main reasons novels feature a protagonist and a sidekick the a main reason it works so well is that the interaction between the two characters allows information to be put before the reader in an entertaining way by dialogue watching sherlock holmes and dr watson interact being in the middle of their affectionate and prickly relationship makes conan doyle's information easy to absorb a fourth advantage of dialogue is it's a, it's a method to vary the novel's texture. After a scene that features a description of a setting uh, in the author's narration, dialogue gives a break to the reader. In a novel written in the third person, the writer-narrator's description of action can be followed with a scene heavy with dialogue. Another advantage is that 
Dialogue is an economic way to reveal a character to the reader, which is to say, to show rather than tell about the character. Anything the character says reveals the character's personality to the reader. A character who says, I don't see nothing wrong with them lunch pails, probably didn't receive an MBA from Stanford, and the writer need not say much about the character's educational background. A character who says, I can hear the voices inside my head and one of them is Joan of Arc's, needs medication and, and perhaps a visit to a, psych a psychiatric ward and probably has a history of mental illness. The reader learns all of this with one sentence of dialogue. A, a young lady who says, Bobby, can I call you Bobby instead of Bob? You're taller than the other guys I know. Do you like being tall? She's probably a flirt and is good at it. And Bobby uh, may pick this up in just a, sent a couple of sentences of dialogue. These are the advantages of, of dialogue, but writing dialogue has traps. Because many writers find dialogue easier than narrative prose, it's easy to run off at the mouth. Dialogue can sometimes pour out of a writer, filling the pages with meaningless exchanges, so the novel's forward momentum can stop and the, in, and the reader's interest wanes. Dialogue must have a purpose. It must move the story forward, just as do all the other elements of a novel. Here's a test. If the dialogue were left out, would the reader miss it? Another trap is that dialogue shouldn't be a substitute for other important ingredients of a novel, such as action and crafted descriptions. A writer might find it easy to have another snappy conversation at the expense of the writer-narrated action uh, needed at a, a point in the story. Action, which is, of course, the characters doing something, is usually the most interesting element of a novel. Dialogue shouldn't substitute for action. Another trap, written dialogue should sound like a real conversation, but not too much like a real conversation. Dialogue shouldn't sound phony, but it can't sound real either. John Lahuru, a novelist and poet who for 10 years was the director of the Stanford Writing Program, said, quote, Young writers often confuse dialogue with conversation under the assumption that the closer you get to reality, the more convincing you sound. But dialogue is not conversation. Dialogue is a construct. It is artificial. It is much more efficient and believable than real conversation, end quote. If you are finding these podcasts useful and would like to support it, please consider hitting the support the show link below and it'll take you to a Patreon page. It'd be much appreciated. We fill our daily talk with, in real life with pauses and incomplete thoughts and meandering. Uh, a lot of us say, uh, or you know, in almost every sentence. These are called disfluencies, uh, and er, and the other pauses. Conversation from fictional characters needs to be more refined than this. It should be cleaned up. Not perfectly clean, of course, but fairly clean.
James Fallows in The Atlantic says, quote, People don't naturally speak in parsed and polished sentences, even eloquent people. When we are listening to what we know is spontaneous rather than scripted speech, we listen in a different way. We listen past grammatical glitches, repetitions, and other things that would be flaws on a printed page or in a formal oration. If you don't believe me, look back for any extemporized performance that was judged to be riveting by audiences in real time. A campaign rally, a TV interview, a debate, the closing argument in a trial. If you then read a word-by-word transcript, it will look like a mess. End quote. That's James Fallows in The Atlantic. When you hear that a writer can learn about writing dialogue by listening to people talk, it's only partly true. Conversely, dialogue should not be stilted with multisyllabic words. Nobody these days, or even then, speaks as does the protagonist in H.G. Wells' The Time Machine from 1895. Quote, So long as I traveled at a high velocity through time, this scarcely mattered. I was, so to speak, attenuated, was slipping like a vapor through interstices of intervening substances. End quote. Here are some tips for effective dialogue. The novelist Saul Stein points out that, quote, dialogue is at best when it is confrontational and adversarial. And when talk is tough and combative, it can be much more exciting than physical action. This seems counterintuitive, and it struck me that way the first time I read it. But it is a really important technique about writing dialogue. Argument is the most interesting dialogue. An argument is more entertaining than uh, flattery. Uh, An accusation is more gripping than gratitude. An argument generates conflict, an essential ingredient of a novel in all of its scenes. Listen to the master of dialogue, George V. Higgins, in the opening lines of his famous novel, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. These are the opening lines. Listen to the argument. Jackie Brown, at 26, with no expression on his face, said that he could get some guns. Quote, I can get your pieces probably by tomorrow night. I can get you probably six pieces tomorrow night. In a week or so, maybe maybe 10 days, another dozen. I got a guy coming in with at least 10 of them, but I already talked to another guy about four of them, and he's, you know, expecting them. He's got something to do, so six tomorrow night, another dozen in a week. The stocky man sat across from Jackie Brown and allowed his coffee to grow cold. I don't know as I like that, he said. I don't know as I like buying stuff from the same lot as somebody else. Like, I don't know what he's going to do with it, you know. If it was to cause trouble to my people on account of somebody else having some from the same lot, well, it could cause trouble for me, too. I understand, Jackie Brown said. People who got out early from work went by in the November afternoon hurrying. The crippled man hawked records, annoying people by crying at them from his skate-wheeled dolly. You don't understand the way I understand, the stocky man said. I got certain responsibilities. Look, Jackie Brown said, I tell you I understand. Did you get my name or didn't you? 
end quote. That's uh, George V. Higgins showing us how to write dialogue that is an argument. Here's another uh, important technique about writing dialogue. Let the dialogue generate its own description. He said and she asked and she said are called dialogue tags. It identifies the speaker. She said and she asked, are, use them almost always instead of something like she purred or he exclaimed or he declared or she snarled or she whined. The reason is that the reader most often has already done the work of giving intonation to the character's words by the time the sentence is over or in the context of the entire conversation. And something like, he declared, as a dialogue tag, is often gratuitous, like two periods at the end of a sentence. Once in a while, though, she whispered or she cut in as dialogue tags and some other descriptions of the words are necessary if the spoken sentence doesn't infer what is occurring. And here is a, a critical thing about writing dialogue. We should use as our dialogue tags identifying who's speaking, we should use said or asked almost all the time and not words that don't mean to speak. Writers sometimes use a word for said that doesn't mean said. Here's an example, quote, I wonder what I'll do, end quote, he mused. Mused means to think, not to speak. Quote, take that away, end quote, she gestured. <laughs> Gesturing, of course, is done with the hands, not the vocal cords. Quote, that's going to hurt, end quote, Matthew winced. Wincing means to draw back or, or tense the body, not to say something. Quote, that's lovely, end quote, she sighed. To sigh is to let out one's breath audibly, not to form words. Quote, just doing my job, end quote, Smith grinned. Grinning is to lift the corners of the mouth, often exposing the teeth. It's silent. Quote, that Ferris wheel spins fast, end quote, Jones marveled. Marveling is a, is a cognitive activity. It's thinking. It's done inside the brain. It has nothing to do with the vocal cords. You will occasionally see these words that don't mean to speak used as dialogue tags in published writing. But as Dean Kuntz says, quote, books full of inept dialogue tags get published all the time. Of course they do. Not all published writers are good writers, end quote. That's Dean Kuntz. And we shouldn't worry about using the dialogue tags he said and she asked too often. And the reason is they are invisible on the page. They don't register on the reader other than to indicate who's speaking. Strong and memorable words uh, describing an old man as grizzled or a character's eyes as predatory should only be used once in a novel. The reader remembers these strong words, and the first time they are brilliant, and the second time they are lazy. But nobody remembers or even registers the dialogue tags she asked or she said.
And often we can, in our dialogue writing, omit the dialogue tag, the he said or he asked entirely, because the preceding or following sentence clearly indicates who's speaking. Omitting the dialogue tag, he said, can make the sentence smoother. Here's an example. I brought the knife, Ted said, reaching into his pocket. Instead, try this. Instead of, I brought the knife, Ted said, try, I brought the knife. Ted reached into his pocket. Here's another example. Quote, was it terrible those three years? Question mark, end quote, she asked, handing him the razor and shaving cream. Instead, try this. Omit the dialogue tag, she asked. Instead, quote, was it terrible those three years? Question mark, end quote. She handed him the razor and shaving cream. The reader knows who's speaking because you're going back and forth with your paragraphs, each paragraph containing one character's dialogue. And here is another uh, technique that's so important. We've already spoken in an earlier episode about how a scene should begin in the middle. Instead of plotting a, a chronology of A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, the best scenes are usually plotted B, C, new scene, B, C. This holds true for dialogue. Small talk is a necessary part of everyday life. It, it sets up the more substantive conversation that follows. But in fiction, nobody wants to read small talk. When we first meet with someone in real life, the conversation goes something like, What's going on? Nothing. You? Nothing. The weather could be better. Yeah, I left my car window open last night. Yeah, I've done that before. I dried, off, I dried off the seats with a towel. It's okay now. Didn't get anything important wet. Is this of any interest to anyone? No, it isn't. Not in a novel. S similarly, we end our real-life conversations with something like, I'm going to go get a coffee. Want to come? Sure, but I need, <laughs> I need to use the bathroom first. It's on the first floor. I passed it coming in right near Auntie Annie's. I'll see you in a couple minutes. You want me to order you anything? Uh, yeah, mint mocha, thanks. See you in a bit. Whipping cream on it? Yeah, thanks. Meet you in the coffee place. This is how real conversations work, but it isn't how good fiction dialogue works because small talk is dull. Instead, the reader should have the sense that she has dropped in on the conversation. She's picked it up mid-course, after the preliminary talk is in the past. For example, in a jail interview between a lawyer and a prisoner, we don't need to hear the lawyer ask how the food is or the prisoner ask about the weather outside. Instead, the scene can begin with the lawyer saying, quote, your alibi doesn't work for the prosecutor or for me, Joe, end quote. So we should begin the dialogue in mid-conversation, mid-accusation. The writer has jumped right into the middle of it, and uh, as we've talked about, conflict is in place early, an accusation by the lawyer in this instance. 
After some give and take in the dialogue, the writer can pull back to describe the room and the prisoner, if that's necessary, then back to the dialogue. Similarly, the reader shouldn't have to listen to the conversation end as it might end in real life. In real life, a lawyer typically wouldn't leave a prisoner without offering a few small comments, such as, hope you can shake the cold, or I'll send you some Snickers, or I'll come back in a week. But in fiction, we should end the conversation before the small talk. This scene might end the last words of dialogue and the last lines in the scene, something like, I think you're looking at 20 years. We mentioned the rule of exceptions in an earlier podcast. There's an exception to the avoid the small talk, uh, small talk rule and an exception to beginning in the middle of a scene. Often the dialogue doesn't have to be about the subject of the scene. The novelist Raymond Obstfeld shows how. This is Raymond Obstfeld. One of the secrets to compelling dialogue is that the characters don't necessarily have to be talking about something important in the story. A man and a woman meet for the first time. The reader sees they are attracted to each other. They don't have to discuss how attracted they are. Instead, they discuss 24-hour restaurants they frequent because they are both insomniacs. This discussion can be much more compelling because it reveals their personalities. Remember that such conversations are not about conveying information, but about building character and momentum. That's Raymond Obsfeld. So this is an exception to the, to the small talk rule. Two 15-year-olds on the porch deciding whether to kiss each other. They don't talk about whether to kiss each other, do they? They, they talk about the mean math teacher as they sidle closer and closer and look at each other uh, longer and longer. Another technique, readers prefer dialogue that is a conversation rather than a monologue. A conversation between characters that is broken up by back and forth dialogue is more interesting and entertaining than a character's lecture. Here, here's an example. Here is a speech by Jessica, or rather, it's uh, Jessica asks a question and Ben answers in a monologue. Jessica asked, what happened? I tried to start the car, Ben said, but the thief had hot-wired it and the ignition didn't work, so I knelt down under the steering wheel so I could look up under the dashboard, and sure enough, it was a rat's nest of wires. I tried to untangle them and figure out what was going on, but it didn't make any sense to me, so I... But I figured if the thief could start it, so could I. So I was fiddling around under the steering wheel, my back aching and my knees too, and suddenly I'm shoved hard by someone behind me, and my head bounces against the steering column, and I felt a hand in my pocket taking my wallet. I'd been mugged right there on Elm Street. I could hear the guy running away, but by the time I got out of the car, he was a block down the street. So now my car doesn't work, but that's okay because I don't have a driver's license anymore. End quote. That's Ben delivering a monologue. Here's the same information delivered, but it's broken up. It's back and forth. It, you hear both Jessica and Ben, and it looks better on the page than a block of text. Jessica asked, what happened? 
I tried to start the car, Ben replied. The thief had hot-wired it, and the ignition didn't work. End quote. Jessica stared at him. Knelt, uh, new paragraph. I knelt down under the steering wheel so I could look up under the dashboard. End quote. Since when do you know anything about car wiring? Jessica asked. It was a rat's nest of wires. I tried to untangle them and figure out what was going on. End quote. Quote, I wouldn't have a clue. Jessica sipped her Coke. Anyway, they go on back and forth, and it's it's an interesting scene, uh, having your car stolen and your, and your wallet stolen, but uh, the way Ben did it originally with his monologue just isn't as interesting as the back and forth between Ben and Jessica. We've come to the end of this podcast. Next time, we'll talk a little bit more about writing effective dialogue, and then we'll change subjects and talk about foreshadowing. Foreshadowing in a novel is important, and there are good techniques to do it. This is Jim Thayer. Until next time, keep tapping those keys.